Welcome back to the Borough Shire Podcast. I'm Brandon Vaught, and as always, I'm joined by Father Blake Britton. Father Blake, always good to see you. Likewise, brother. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about what to watch and how to watch it. And that primarily refers to movies and TV shows. What type of entertainment should we consume as Catholics? Uh, but we also want to expand it a little bit to books, to video games, any type of entertainment that we consume. Uh, I hear this a lot from my friends, and I know, Father Blake, as a young priest, you hear it from a lot of young adults especially, that are trying to discern, you know, there's so much out there, there's so many questions when it comes to morality and sensitivities, you know, what, what's good for my soul? I think especially, we, we joked way before we started this podcast that we should do an episode on like Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, Latin Mass, we could pack like every controversial subject into one <laughs> podcast, it'd probably get a million views. Um, right, but some Just of those completely clickbait kind of you know, <laughs> yeah. topic. <laughs> but I, I think that speaks to the fact that some of these types of entertainment, the Harry Potter series, one example, Game of Thrones, violent video games would be another one. They're flashpoints for a lot of people. Some people argue in their favor. Others think they're morally reprehensible. Um, so we kind of wanted to talk through some principles here. And this isn't just a, a didactic episode of, of us just teaching lessons. These are things that Father Blake and I have talked about many times with the books that we read and the movies that we watch. So um, I hope this will be an expansion of some conversations that Father Blake and I have shared. Um, so where do you want to start, Father Blake? Yeah, I mean, this really is a point of concern, especially pastorally. Uh, the amount of young adults, millennials, Gen Zers that I have in the confessional or that I have in pastoral counseling who are always asking these questions, especially nowadays in the entertainment industry, when there really is a lot of things that could be harmful spiritually, but there's also some really beautiful things that transmit virtue and, and help us understand where culture is and keep our sort of finger on the pulse of culture, if you will. Um, and so I think this is going to be a really enriching experience for, for all of us as we discern more deeply how can we, with the Catholic mindset, approach entertain, entertainment mediums and really ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance on how these can enrich our spiritual lives. Maybe one place to start here is I know a lot of Catholics want something analogous to the, the old index of forbidden books. You remember like right. the Vatican used to have this formal index where books would not just be added to the list, sometimes they'd be removed from the list, but it was kind right. of a list of not just heretical theological books, but any books that are morally objectionable, scandalous, and it was kind of easy for Catholics in past centuries to say, look, if it's on the list, it's a no-go for me. Like, under no circumstance would I want to read that book, and vice versa. If it's not on the index of forbidden books, well, maybe it's permissible. Um, but the church doesn't have, like, you know, an index of forbidden movies or, you know, an index of forbidden video games. Um, what do you think about this general approach that, you know, a book or a video game or movie is either totally good for everyone or totally bad and should be prohibited for everyone. Right, well, that's a complex question because there are multiple levels of morality and theology that we have to answer in this particular topic. So first of all, there would be some form of benefit, of course, to having something come from the Holy See or, or maybe even from our bishop's conference, helping us discern certain films or backgrounds. And actually, I remember growing up, we have a newspaper in our, in our province called the Florida Catholic and they used to have, I don't know if they still do, not that I've seen, but they used to have a section on movies that were coming out in theaters. And it was like a parent's guide for morality and spirituality. And, and it would give you, you know, definitely don't take your kids to see this movie or you shouldn't see this movie. It's morally an illicit kind of thing to subject your soul to. Or they would say, you know, there's some scenes in there that are difficult. 
There's maybe some violence that may cause some discomfort, but overall the themes of the movie are very deep and even have a Christian context. So there is some value to that in having the magisterium help guide our discernment. That being said, Mother Church is also very adamant on giving us the freedom to mature in our own discernment. So although we have the guidance of Mother Church and her teachings, she doesn't want to dictate to us these kind of things that we should be doing and should not be doing, because that would be an immature way for a soul to really respond to truth and to the gospel. And so the church does really focus more on conscience formation and really forming within the depths of the heart of the human person a virtuous life, a deep desire for holiness. And what will happen through that virtue formation is that our appetites, our desires, our inclinations will naturally be oriented towards the good, the true, and the beautiful. And that will allow us now the strength and the discernment of heart to see what kind of things we should be exposing our souls towards. That reminds me of this distinction between two different moral frameworks. On the one hand, you have what's called the deontological or the legalistic format, which is here's a big list of things not to do and a big list of things to do. And to be a moral person means doing the good things and avoiding the bad things. That's one moral system. The other moral system is called virtue ethics. And virtue ethics isn't concerned with necessarily with the moral uh, the morality of particular acts, it's about shaping you to become a particular type of virtuous person. Right. So it says right. like uh, to to become moral means to um, arrange your decisions, the pattern of your life, the things you consume, so that it's drawing you to become more virtuous. You know, if, if you want to know what the good thing to do is, find the good man and then imitate him. Do those right. sorts of things. And, it and seems this like comes this, from Aristotle in his metaphysics, but also Thomas Aquinas will take this up in his Summa, and he will speak this ancient Latin maxim, which has become really a guardian of my own moral life and development, agere sequitur esse, action flows from being. See, nowadays we get this backwards. We think that being flows from action, but that's not necessarily the case. The proper orientation of a Christian soul is that we shape our being according to the good, the true, and the beautiful. And as we shape our being, as we expose ourselves to the beautiful, as we expose ourselves to the truth, as we expose ourselves to the good by being with virtuous, holy men and women, by seeing beautiful sacred art, by listening to sacred music and also classical music and different forms of beauty, then our being now in its very existence becomes shaped and oriented towards that which is good, true and beautiful. And it allows us now to really see, uh, you know what, actually that isn't attractive to me. So maybe before that might have been attractive to me, and I see this on a regular basis, especially people who have had really profound conversion experiences, to where something immoral or something that was really virtually ugly was attractive to them. And then after they meet Jesus Christ and they're exposed to the truth of Mother Church, all of a sudden that thing is no longer attractive to them. They're like, oh, I can't believe I used to do that or I used to go to that kind of place or I used to watch that kind of movie. It's not even attractive to me anymore. And that's because their soul now has been formed to be able to discern and have proper appetites and to consume those things which are good for it. I like the way you described it, because in that scenario, it's not like the person is, again, going down a list of movies or places, experiences, and finding that movie on the bad list and saying, oh, I got to avoid it because it's on the bad list. Instead, they're recognizing the qualities of that movie are not engendering the type of virtue that I'm now pursuing. It's not helping me to become the type of person that I want to become. Yeah. And that's also important, by the way, just for raising children. 
for our parents who are listening. I know we have a lot of young parents who listen to our podcast. We thank you. It's such a blessing to get all of your messages and all of your post comments. And we read all of them. So thank you so much for sharing with us. And we know that a lot of you are concerned about how to raise your children in the contemporary society. And that's one of the best things that we could do for them is if we really allow them to experience the beauty of a great home life, the goodness of our own charity within the four walls of our home, the truth of Mother Church and the catechism and the teachings of the Second Vatican Council and the church history and the fathers, when they go into their teenage and young adult years and they're in situations of temptation, they're not going to fall into those situations. Or if they do, they're going to know exactly how to respond to it properly by seeking divine mercy. So by giving them those tools, it really prepares them to go out to the world and to evangelize. All right. So with those sort of general principles in mind, you know, this isn't about drawing up a list of good stuff and bad stuff. It's more about virtue formation, character formation. Um, we're also going to presume that, you know, you're a faithful Catholic pursuing the life of holiness. So with with all those foundational things in place, maybe for the rest of this episode, let's let's walk through just some general principles that will help you to discern what to watch and how to watch it. Uh, the first one here is something you and I have talked a lot about, and it's it's newer for me. I know this has been something you've practiced for a while, but uh, I've only really committed to it for a handful of years, and that's to really favor innocence and purity yes. and to protect the purity of your soul when it comes to media. Like growing up, I, you know, I would have zero qualms playing the most violent video games, watching the most body videos. I, you know, I just assumed that's just something I'm enjoying as entertainment. It's not really affecting my soul in any way. You know, it's leaving no permanent effect. But I've come to see a, a lot through our conversations that everything you expose yourself to is shaping your soul one way or another. It's tilting it yeah. slightly toward virtue or slightly toward vice. And I'm reminded of a, a awesome story that you shared with me with uh, Joseph Ratzinger, now Pope Benedict XVI, and rated our movies. You want to share that? Yeah, it's a beautiful story. One time he was asked, have you ever seen a rated R movie? And he really didn't understand the categorization of that because obviously that's before his time. Well, excuse me, after his time, rather. <laughs> and uh, and he responded in such a beautiful, simplistic way. He said, well, can children watch those movies? And they said, well, no, usually children don't watch rated R movies. He said, well, then I won't watch them either. And it was this notion of he's a child. He has a childlike heart. He sees himself as a child of God. And here, is, of course, is really one of the most intellectually, spiritually mature individuals of our age, Pope Benedict XVI. And yet he himself understood that there are limits to what to expose your soul towards, to prefer innocence over exposing yourself to something that possibly have some good in it, but it has more weeds than wheat. And that, again, is part of that discernment process. There are some things that we may watch that have a weed here or there, but there's majority wheat. There's, there's an essential sort of goodness to that activity, and we're able with wisdom to cipher out those things that are not applicable to our holiness. But if there's more weeds, if it's something that maybe every once in a while says something good, well, then prefer innocence. Always go on the side of innocence and protecting our hearts. This, of course, comes straight from Jesus himself. Don't throw your pearls before the swine. What does he mean by that? The pearl is our soul. That's the pearl. The pearl is the gift of our baptism, confirmation of Holy Eucharist, the state of grace. Those are the pearls that we've been given. Don't throw them before the swines of sultry entertainment. We must be very discerning. And it's always better to safeguard our innocence and our purity. There's nothing to be ashamed about when we're childlike. That's a wonderful gift. Unless you have the heart of a child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's 
I, in my in my opinion, and what I always tell people who are trying to grow in the spiritual life is, when in doubt, err on the side of innocence, always. We don't have to watch television to become a saint. <laughs> you know, we don't have to expose ourselves to certain things to become holy. All we really need is Christ, and we need the church. Uh, so always trust those things first. You know, I think the common counter-argument is if you always favor innocence and purity and only watch children's movies or read children's books, you'll be naive to a much more mature understanding of the human condition. You won't understand the dynamics and complexities of sexuality and human relationships and evil and suffering and all that kind of stuff. But then I think we just use this example of Joseph Ratzinger. I mean, can you right. think of a person besides Joseph Ratzinger or someone like John Paul II who protected his soul in a similar way? that better understood the human condition? Like, read their <laughs> writings and tell me this isn't a person that grappled with the deepest, most profound complexities of human relationships and life and love and sexuality. Like, they didn't need to watch movies to get all that, is my point. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that, of course, that whole notion comes from a false understanding of what it means to be human. To be human does not mean to sin. That's a heresy. That's a false teaching. When I hear people say that, I always remind them of Genesis chapter one. He made them good, which in the original Hebrew means morally upright. Adam and Eve were sinless. To be truly human is to be without sin. This is why Jesus Christ is fully human and fully divine, because he is like us in all things but sin. That but sin part is what makes him fully human and us not. <laughs> and we're trying to reclaim our humanity by by the graces and the sacrifice of Christ, by allowing him to transform our sinfulness into avenues of grace. So first and foremost, that comes from misunderstanding of what it means to be human. But also, of course, you're right, St. John Vianney was sent to a parish that was filled with drunks and prostitutes. He did not have to be drunk and go with a prostitute to learn how to minister to them. That was not a precursor or prerequisite for him being a good priest. He was among the most innocent of souls, and it was his innocence, it was his purity of heart that allowed him to properly give the people what they actually wanted, which was not alcohol and which was not lust. It was Jesus and the goodness of his heart and the purity of his soul. That's what they are really longing for. And so when we allow ourselves to be formed in the same way, Christ is able to use that as a grace. And of course, it would be uh, illogical, illogical, excuse me, or irrational to assume that we just have to read like the children's Bible all the time and think that that will maintain childish kind of hearts. There's a difference between being childish and childlike. So being childish, having naivete, that's not a virtue. But being childlike and preserving the innocence of your soul, that is a virtue. And the distinction, of course, lies in our maturity and our understanding of the truth. Let's turn to another principle. We've talked about this, I think, on a past episode when it came to the question of what type of Catholic, Catholic media should we consume? Catholic websites, mm. Catholic news, Catholic YouTube channels. But I think it applies more broadly to the bigger realm of, of all movies or video games. And that's the, this criteria. Does yeah. this thing that I'm absorbing produce or inhibit the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So if you look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, Paul lays out the fruits of the Spirit, which are basically signals that the Holy Spirit is active and alive in whatever you're discerning. So these would include love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. So ask yourself, when I watch this movie, or you know, even when I watch this trailer, I haven't even seen the movie, but I'm trying to figure out if I want to watch the movie, 
do I think it's likely that I'm going to finish that movie with more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, or less? To me, that's right. always a fantastic criteria. It, it doesn't prohibit even dark or macabre movies. Some mm. of them will. Like one of my favorite uh, books, I'm not a, as huge a fan of the movie, is Cormac McCarthy's The Road. And it's this apocalyptic novel of this father dragging his son through this barren wasteland of of horror. I mean, cannibalists, uh, death, disease. It's, it's one of the darkest stories I think I've ever read. But... Um, it's deeply moving because the father is so committed to sacrificing himself for the son. The son is carrying the flame. He keeps encouraging him to carry the flame, carry the flame. So many spiritual overtones throughout the book, but you finish it and you're not left hopeless. Your soul has been deeply stirred by the relationship between the father and the son, his commitment to, to love and paternal care and all that stuff. So by that criteria, uh, to me, it it fills me with more of the fruits of the spirit. So I've always loved that uh, that criteria. Is it leaving you with more or less of the fruits of the spirit? There's an important Catholic principle in what you just said as well, Brandon. The fact that in order for something to be Christian or Catholic, it does not explicitly need to say the name of Jesus. It doesn't need to be explicitly Christian or Catholic. There could be an implicit kind of genius. Most perfect example in our recent age, of course, is J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series. There is a profoundly Catholic work that does not mention the name of Jesus a single time. But what makes it Catholic is the fact that the medium itself is used to transmit eternal truths. The medium itself, even though it uses magic, it uses sorcery, it uses violence, it uses these kind of monsters and this war that's going on, all those things in the end are not really the main focus of that book, but rather He's world building in order to transmit deeper truths that are essentially Catholic truths. This notion of self-sacrificial love, of carrying things to the very end, of perseverance, of giving yourself in virtue and honor and valor. Of course, all these things are reminiscent of Christ himself and what he's done for our salvation. So when you read Lord of the Rings, it stirs something within you. And of course, that's the Catholic principle of your baptism that it's stirring. And it's similar for some of these films and books that we'll be talking about later on as well, such as one that you just mentioned. Let's talk more about fantasy. Let's maybe stick on that for a little bit. I think you probably uh, read more fantasy than I do, and certainly in the world of video games, you know, most video games that that are popular and that you like are fantastical. You know, they're not yeah. historical reenactments. Um, I think the criticism a lot of these types of media get is that they're so escapist. You know, they take you away from reality and not toward reality. And I think back to we did a few episodes back. Um, on, uh, I forgot what the general topic was. We were talking about um, shaping your soul and making the dis proper distinction between fantasy and reality. And we were discouraging right. people away from fantasy. So how do we reconcile all this, that we want to stick with the real? If that's the case, then should we consume media that promotes fantastical worlds and stories? Yeah, we well, mentioned that in two podcasts, and the one on video games as well as the one on spiritual woundedness and how to distinguish between fantasy and reality. So in order to answer this question, I am yet again going to implore the intercession of J.R.R. Tolkien. You've already reached <laughs> your limit. Two per episode. I, <laughs> two Tolkien references per episode. So for those of you who don't know, we get two Tolkien references per episode. We get two Chesterton references yeah, per episode. I'm, I've got some Chesterton get, coming up, so we will hit that, that uh, criteria. 
But I made that deal so I could make infinite Ratzinger references, <laughs> Pope Benedict references, the whole podcast. There are no Ratzinger <laughs> limits. So that's that's the payoff. Uh, this wonderful essay that Jared Polkari stories. I strongly encourage our viewers and listeners to please read that essay. It's fantastic. No pun intended. Say, say it again. It what was really the title? Does dis- on fairy stories. On fairy stories. On right. fairy stories. So it's actually an essay that he gave, a lecture that he gave. But there's some commentary at the end of it, so it's not a book properly speaking. But this lecture, this essay, reflects on the distinction between fantasy in the bad sense and fantasy in the good sense, and what he calls the land of fairy. And so fantasy in the proper sense is not to escape from the real, but rather it's using a language that actually helps us dive more deeply into reality. It captures the deeper reality in this kind of fantastical, really descriptive, exaggerative mentalities. So I'll give an example that I gave in our Bible discussion and podcast when I mentioned about George Washington crossing the Delaware and how factually what we would care about is the water temperature, what he was wearing, did George Washington really have wooden teeth, how tall was he, how many soldiers were there on the other side. And those are important for facts of history, but those are not the most important things about George Washington crossing the Delaware. It's much more important the valor that it took for him to do so, the sacrificial spirit that this man who was a founder of our country, what he gave up in order to work for the United States of America. And so a fantastic storyteller, one who uses fantasy, who employs what J.R.R. Tolkien calls the land of fairy to transmit the truth of George Washington, would not describe the facts, but rather they would describe George Washington as this amazing figure who's 12 feet tall, who's who's wearing a golden fleece. He's on a mighty warship going to fight a red dragon. And everyone listening to that knows that he's not actually fighting a red dragon. He's not actually riding this huge warship. But all those things are symbols of deeper truths. And those deeper truths are his courage and are his sacrifice and his his ability to fight this really terrible, seemingly undefeatable beast, which was the British Army at that time, the most powerful army on the planet. So that's what authentic fantasy does. It employs the imagination, which is a gift from the Lord, and imagination, the ability to manifest images, to make images. It employs the imagination for the sake of diving deeper into reality through sign and through symbol. This is also what we call myth. And myth doesn't mean something fake. Myth means something that, that's so beautifully true that it has to be transmitted through the faculties, uh, the transcendental metaphysical faculties of the human person. Uh, and that's where the distinction lies. Fantasy can be employed, of course, in a perverse and crooked way. And a most perfect example of that would be something like pornography. There's a horrific example of fantasy of not using myth, symbol, sign in order to dive into a deeper truth of human dignity, but rather extrapolating someone's dignity, objectifying them, and then using them in order to secure a vice, which would be lust in that particular circumstance. Or if we were to read bad literature and see bad movies, that's imploring fantasy, that's imploring the imaginative intellect in order to help us not go into reality, which is virtue, holiness, but to take us further from reality, which is sin and selfishness. So there's the distinction between the two. I think Tolkien picks up on this exact idea in that famous lecture on fairy stories. Um, by the way, if, if listeners want to read that, which I highly recommend, Father Blake and I both do, there's a great collection of Tolkien's essays and talks called The Monsters and the Critics. 
Um, you'll also find his commentary on Beowulf in there, which is Father Blake's favorite story. So we'll have to—I'm not even going to let him speak here. We'll have to do a whole another podcast episode on on Beowulf. <laughs> uh, but on the on the fairy stories essay, <clears throat> he makes this point that authentic fantasy paradoxically leads you to more reality. That these fantasy stories, like Lord of the Rings, leads you to things that are more real and more true than say most modern nihilistic novels, which are filled with darkness and backward morality. Um, he also gives the example, he said, you know, some of my books have been criticized as being escapist. They wanna take us out of this world. He said, um, escapism though, isn't always bad. For example, the prisoner trapped within the gallows authentically wants to escape. He wants to escape the dark dungeons and get out into the real world, you know, or to use Plato's analogy, the person trapped in Plato's cave where they only see shadows on the wall and not the real light and the real truth above ground. They want to escape and escapism is a good thing. And so he makes the case that his stories like Lord of the Rings help us to escape into something that's more real, more true, more good, more beautiful, and not less. It's not taking us away from those things, but drawing us toward them. Um, so I, I've always thought that right. that was a good guide to distinguishing between good fantasy and bad fantasy. Right. And that becomes a discerning tool as well when we're looking at what movies to go to, what to allow our children to watch, what kind of books to read. Is this helping us truly grow in that virtue? And also, is is there a depth to this kind of fantasy? You know, Michael Bay movies, Transformers, not that much depth, right? You you go there and you get what you get, which is a bunch of robots beating each Big other up. things <laughs> explode, knock right. down buildings. <laughs> you know, and I said that about the new Jurassic World movie because I remember a lot of people were, were bashing it because they were so upset about Jurassic World and what happened. I said, guys, I went there and I got exactly what I wanted. <laughs> Dinosaurs fighting each other. <laughs> <laughs> that was the level of my expectation. Right, yeah. <laughs> like that was my expectation. I'm not looking for deep philosophical metaphysical truths here in Jurassic World, okay? But there are some other films that try to transmit those kind of things and do a very poor job, and I'll be more critical about those films. But then there are others that that's their goal, and they do a fantastic job really capturing the, the deeper metaphysical truths and realities. Uh, I think one of the most recent films I saw that I just adored, I really loved, was Dr. Doolittle with Robert Downey Jr. Oh, yeah. Fantastic film, very pro-life, very pro-family marriage kind of film, and just told in this really – innocent humor that I laughed the whole film because Robert Downey Jr. is just a great actor altogether. And and seeing that movie, I was like, you know what? This is a good movie for virtue formation. The little boy in that movie has to be courageous, has to overcome his fears. Um, so there's just a lot of good morals in there. There's an example of good fantasy. Hmm. It was a fantastic story that was used to transmit these deeper truths and messages. Let's talk about two flashpoints when it comes to movies and video games and books, and that's sexuality and violence. Um, for a lot of people, uh, and I'm not making any moral judgments here, just laying out two different positions. For, for a lot of people, if a movie contains a scene of nudity, it's automatically off limits. Or if a, you know, a video game contains gratuitous violence, it's non-playable. Um, other people, I think, have a more licentious view where no amount of nudity or violence would discredit a film. You know, you could see anything you want. Uh, I think most Catholics find their, themselves somewhere in the middle there, which is in so many ways the trickier position because it's not a yeah. binary rejection or a binary license to watch anything and everything. So help us discern pastorally through these two particular areas, sexuality and violence. How do we right. navigate which movies or video games or books to watch with those. 
Yeah, wonderful question. And these are, of course, two different areas of morality that have their own intricacies and subtleties, so we'll have to address them as such. First of all, when it comes to sexuality, this most intimate form of human expression, this most intimate form of communion and union, and of course, the dignity of the human body itself, nudity is never an acceptable thing to observe in any sort of film or even in any sort of literature or anything like that. You have these, of course, romantic novels that are just so gratuitous sometimes that I hear, especially a, a lot of even some of my female prisoners share about that they read and they, they're, they're looking at like Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Totally inappropriate, immoral literature to expose our souls to. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? I'm not being a prude. It's the complete opposite. The nakedness of our body was intended to be seen by only one person or consecrated to one person. So in my case... My body, the gift of my flesh, was called to be consecrated to Christ and to the church in celibacy. And that gift of nakedness is not to be seen by anyone. It's something that's to safeguard. The same thing when we come to marriage, however. You have marriage, that nakedness, that gift of your body is meant only to be seen by one human being on this planet and to be given in that way. And of course, I'm taking out of the equation here, medical visits and that sort of stuff. So that's obviously logically sometimes we have to do certain things whenever we need medical attention. But outside of that, in the ordinary circumstance, there's only one person who is allowed the gift of that nakedness as St. John Paul II would talk about, and that is your spouse. That's who you've given yourself to. Outside of that, no one should be seeing the nakedness of your body because that's such a sacred, beautiful gift that reveals so much of who you are. We're bodily and spiritual creatures, which means that when you see my body, you're not just seeing the shell of my soul. When you see my body, you're seeing me as well. So nudity is not acceptable in any kind of filmography for sure, but even when it comes to literature, if it gets too gratuitously sexual, and especially if it shows anything, it needs to be something that's fast forwarded <laughs> or something that you don't watch at all. So that's and there's also no age limit. I know there are some people who say, well, I'm a grown grown adult man now. OK, I don't care how grown adult man you are. OK, uh, that's never an acceptable thing to expose our minds, our hearts, our eyes to what we see. We can never unsee the human mind. Memory was created to be eternal. It was created to be impressed upon by truth and to, rec and to recall truth. This is why trauma is so difficult to deal with. When someone's seen something traumatic, it impresses itself upon the intellect and the mind to such a degree as not to be forgotten because we were created for goodness and the brain is actually wired to never forget because we're supposed to see beautiful things. But unfortunately, in a broken world, that's not always the case and that's why we have reconciliation and healing and prayer. So when it comes to nudity, that's never an acceptable thing to, to definitely to see or even to read. Now, of course, there are romantic themes that could take place i think once again of lord of the rings the relationship between aragorn and of course oh my goodness i forgot her name Arwen, kill me. yeah yeah thank you so there's a romantic context there but it's what i call romantic chastity meaning that it's a romance it's so beautiful and actually even more attractive and pure that you see their, their love and it inspires you it inspires you to the marriage that they eventually have you know uh, and they they share this kind of love in a pure setting so there's a way to integrate romance into novels and to integrate romance into television of course and that's a beautiful human experience but to go beyond that to that which is properly in the realm of privacy and properly in the realm of respecting human dignity and intimacy that's crossing a line that we should that we should not cross when it comes to violence, that's a little bit different. <laughs> Again, violence is not at the same degree as sexuality. That's much more of an intimate practice. 
of course, we're all in agreement that horrific, gore, you know, gory things such as in horror movies or even some war movies, it's not something that we should be exposing our minds, hearts, bodies, and souls towards. But there is a level of, of violence that if your soul is able to, you don't have to, and this is another point I want to emphasize, none of these things are necessary for your salvation. <laughs> so if you don't feel comfortable watching something like uh, Braveheart, you know, if you don't feel comfortable watching something like Gladiator or whatever it may be with some of these films that are a little more violent, that's okay. Like you don't have to be, be at peace with that. There's a, there's a, it's okay if your soul is sensitive to that sort of things and thank the Lord for that gift. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily mean that those, that those kind of films that have that kind of violence just because it's portraying a historical uh, component are immoral. Now, if it is overly emphatic on the violence, I think of something like a Quentin Tarantino film, which are not moral films to watch, <laughs> uh, are not moral films to expose our heart towards. They're just so unnecessarily brutal and graphic and really to show the degradation of a human body to such a degree that it's disgusting. That's not appropriate to expose our souls to. But then you look at something, there are movies about Joan of Arc, and it shows sword fighting and gore because she fought in the wars. Uh, you see even movies about certain lives of the saints and certain heroes, Winston Churchill, George Washington. Uh, these films show this kind of violence, but it's not for the sake of the violence itself, it's to portray the reality of the history that they went through. So there's always these mature, discerning moments that we have to go through, and of course it has to be age-appropriate as well. So children should not be watching Patton, which is one of my favorite films about General Patton. Uh, but at the same time, children can watch something else whenever they get older, right? So we have to be discerning also as far as age goes. So that's those are some of the basic principles as far as guiding your soul. But but if it's something that you're that you're watching and you feel within your heart like uh, there's a question, you should probably stop watching <laughs> that thing and pray about it before you continue. Well, I'll observe that in your Aragorn Arwen answer, that was in fact the third Tolkien mention of the episode. So um, punishments will come later for exceeding the, the two <laughs> Tolkien mention limit. I'm sorry. <laughs> I remember I remember reading a, a line that I thought was very perceptive from G.K. Chesterton. He was, I don't know if he was asked this question or he was writing an essay on it between, uh, for him, someone was asking about the permissibility of reading murder mysteries. Um, in the early 20th century, murder mysteries had this meteoric rise. Chesterton himself wrote a ton of them with his Father Brown detective character. Um, in fact, I think in Chesterton's autobiography, he says somewhere that like, in my life, I've killed thousands of people. You know, the only <laughs> distinction is that I did it all with a pen and a paper and I killed them all in various ways on this page. But anyway, someone asked him about the moral permissibility of reading these novels, which contain a lot of murder, a lot of killing, a lot of violence, people being decapitated, all this kind of stuff. And they're like, how can you say that's okay, but then reading like a trashy romance book isn't okay? And one distinction he made was that by and large, when people read or see violence on TV or in movies or in video games, they aren't immediately triggered to sin. They aren't immediately tempted. When you read a murder mystery, you're not immediately tempted to go and murder somebody. Um, but the opposite is true when it comes to nudity and sexuality that for most people, and I'm gener overgeneralizing here probably, but especially for most men, if you see a scene of sexuality, if you see a naked woman, um, you're naturally biologically wired to lust after that, that the very act itself draws you to sin, tempts you to sin. It's, it's almost difficult to avoid. Um, so I thought that, I've always thought that was a helpful distinction. And then another one I've seen made is between 
sexuality depicted in movies and television versus um, say a scene written in a novel, not in a gratuitous way, but just a scene describing you know two characters that had sexual relations. The one in the movie or TV inevitably involves real people committing either real or simulated acts of sexuality with people who aren't their spouses, right? 99.99% of the time, the actors are unrelated. They're not married to each other. So it inevitably involves sinful behavior. So by watching it or viewing it, you're participating even remotely in actual physical sinful behavior involving real human beings. Whereas a novel, especially if it's a fictional novel, is describing a scene, and again, hopefully in balanced and measured language with enough veil over the intimacy, but it's describing something that didn't really happen between two real people. So your cooperation is a bit more remote. I've always found that helpful, although I'd, I'd emphasize what you said, Father Blake, that even then you want to be careful that you're not reading things that cross the line into gratuitous sexual uh, sexuality that arouse lustful thoughts. Um, I just got finished. I think I told you this, that Kathleen and I had an agreement that I would read her favorite book of all time, which is Pride and Prejudice. She would read my favorite book of all time, which is Lord of the Rings, fourth, fourth <laughs> Tolkien reference of the episode fourth now. Fourth Tolkien reference. And I think I, I obviously got the best side of that bargain because Lord of the Rings is like four times longer than Pride and Prejudice. Uh, but anyway, we read Pride and Prejudice together. Amazing book. I can't believe I, it's my first Jane Austen book. I can't believe I didn't read it earlier. It's, it's way more humorous than I thought, way more engaging than I imagined. But what I was especially drawn to was the romance. It's a deeply moving romantic awakening among... Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy, there's not a scene of sexuality in the book. A couple times it's implied very uh, loosely that you know this, this couple lived together, spent the night together. No direct descriptions of sexual behavior, um, you know, no scenes of nudity, nothing like that. Yet still, when you finish that book, you think, I far more profoundly understand the human condition, human yeah. sexuality, romance, man and woman, relations between the two of them, way more better understand it than watching, you know, the latest two hour, you know, Netflix series or HBO series that is packed with gratuitous nudity. So it goes back to our earlier point that, uh, of course, you don't need any of this stuff to be holy and to be a saint, but right. even the arguments of people in its favor that, well, that's, that stuff can be good in some situations because it teaches you something about humanity that you wouldn't get otherwise, I would bulk at that type of argument. I think look back to the Jane Austens of the world, the Chestertons of the world, all those who write about romance without tending toward gratuitous sexuality and say those guys did it way better. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And without alluding to any of those things very explicitly, they transmitted the reality much more clearly and deeply. Of course, the new frontier in this discernment, especially for parents, is going to be the video game realm, which, as you know, is a realm that's very close to my own heart as a gamer. And the same rules apply. There are video games now that have nudity in them, very explicit nudity. You look at something like The Witcher 3. Uh, the Witcher, and it's, it's aggravating, actually, because The Witcher itself Really cool action game, especially, again, for young men. They just love the notion of going out and being this sort of monster hunter, you know. Um, it's just a really cool game with great, it's a wonderful RPG, amazing graphics, fantastic soundtrack. I don't play the game. Uh, and the reason being is that there's just too many scenes in there. And it's it would not be moral for me as a Catholic man, but especially as a Catholic priest, to expose my mind, heart, body, and soul to a video games such as that. So I don't play the game. And it's upsetting, but 
that's a moral line that we have to draw in order to protect our souls. So it's the same kind of principles apply in the video game realm. It would be important, especially for parents, to really ask their kids and to even read the ratings on their video games that your kids are playing. You know, if you have a young man playing Witcher 3, just know that he is seeing explicit scenes in that video game. And it's it's like, oh, that's, that's a dangerous thing to expose his heart to, even virtually. And there's also some video games that are overly gory and overly graphic. It does exist. There are some that are really cool and that you you fight. You know, I think of, again, something, I think of something like uh, The Shadow of Mordor, Another J.R.R. Tolkien reference. I'm sorry. I, the, I, the, Tolkien, the Tolkien estate is going to have to demand royalties from us at this point, I think. <laughs> Although we could buy, you know, his mansion. I know that we saw that was, we that was for sale Don't, recently. Yeah, I'd encourage listeners, maybe we can crowdfund this thing together. But Tolkien's mansion, uh, Tolkien's former residence, which is in fact a mansion, is up for sale. So if, if we'd like to move the Burrowshire podcast on location to England and film in <laughs> Tolkien's mansion, Father Blake and I would not be opposed to that. Not at all. It will. It's only 4.6 million pounds. So yes, <laughs> whatever you all want to donate. <laughs> yes. So it's it's in the realm of possibility, and it's clearly only for ministry. There's there's no other motivations for attaining this residence. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's just for the sake of salvation of souls that we buy that house. <laughs> but uh. But you look at something like the video game Shadow of Mordor, which is based on Tolkien, on his, you know, his, um, his world. It's an incredible game. Awesome. Great sort of fight scenes. Of course, you're fighting for the sake of goodness, you know, and you're trying to defend Middle Earth. So there's a way that you can have these kind of virtue formation, especially in young men who desire courage and heroism, but without any sort of gore. So just be aware of that as well, that in the video game world, this is also a conversation that needs to happen. Well, let's wrap up here. We got maybe five, 10 minutes left. Let's talk about um, the uh, the mindset that Christians should have when watching movies. So everything we've talked about to this point is kind of helping to discern what things we should absorb, what movies we should watch, books we read, video games we play. But suppose we've got you know our acceptable grouping of, of media. How should we absorb it? I, I assume yeah. more than just a passive take in whatever we see, um, we should we should watch it with a certain orientation. What does that look like? The Catholic is always an observer. This is one of the geniuses of our faith that we're people who dynamically interact with the realities around us. And this needs to be inclusive of the entertainment industry. My brother, my youngest brother, his name's Jacob. He always makes fun of me because he says, you can never just watch a movie with Blake. You know, <laughs> like, He's like, if you go with Father Blake to movie theater, get ready for an hour and a half dissertation on that film afterwards. <laughs> he's like, I just wanted to go see the movie. Uh, but there, this is a way that a Catholic views and watches things. For example, when I went and saw the Dr. Doolittle movie, it was, I mean, it was a cute film. You could go there just to watch and have some good laughs and some fun and then leave and forget about it. But that's not how we're supposed to observe things. When I watched it, when I saw his love for his wife, I immediately started thinking about the beauty of the sacrament of marriage and how the different symbols throughout the movies had tied into that sacrament of marriage. When I saw the different animals and what they represented and the different personalities they represented and how that transfers over to real personalities that I interact with in the confessional and pastoral counseling. So all these sort of thoughts are going through me as I'm watching this film and it becomes not just a form of entertainment, but now it's transformed into something deeper. It's transformed into formation, which is what everything in our life should be. We should be constantly striving for holiness. So we have to approach entertainment mediums and really the entirety of our lives with what I call this kind of symbolic sight. 
So everything is symbol, meaning everything is sacramental. Everything is pointing towards a higher truth around us. And this is how we need to start interpreting reality, that what we see, we see at face value, but also we have to go to the next level of sight. What T.A. Barron will call in his wonderful book series, Merlin, second sight. And Merlin has this gift where he loses his sight in the first book, which is called The Lost Years of Merlin. And he thinks that he's blind. And it's only through his deep desire, his deep love to see reality that he develops this second sight, this sort of magical ability to see the real essence of things. And this becomes the sight that Merlin has for the rest of his life. So it's the same thing for us. We need to develop this second sight that's able to see the symbolique, the, the real essence of things, and to see that everything points to something else. And that it's not just face value reality. We can't just be an empirical people. We have to be a sacramental people. And there's a difference between those two things. Another principle that anybody who's been watching Bishop Robert Barron, then Father Barron when he first started, um, and he, watch his YouTube commentaries where he speaks about contemporary films and, and books and current events. He's always looking for what he calls the seeds of the word. And this is an ancient yeah. concept going back to the church fathers that even within pagan religions and literature and poetry, you can find seeds of truth and goodness and beauty that can be used as bridges to the gospel. You know, you can point out in this or that secular film or book, oh, see that, see that? Everything you love about that is really something that's pointing toward Christ. It's really a ray of the light that's stemming from the Son of God. Uh, Bishop Barron's favorite example is the Clint Eastwood movie, Gran Torino. And without mm. giving away too many spoilers, there's a scene at the end where the main character makes this massively sacrificial act which not only saves somebody, but diffuses the dark powers of the world. And Bishop Barron says, there's no better depiction in film of the atonement of Christ, of what Christ is doing on the cross. And the reason that's so powerful is if you watch the Clint Eastwood film first, and you're drawn to the beauty and power of this fictional character's act, then when you encounter Christ doing the same thing in the Gospels, your mind is immediately ready to accept the full force of that. You're prepared for it, you know? It reminds right. me of a, um, another story. A, a mother of a young boy sent a letter to C.S. Lewis, and she said, uh, Dear Mr. Lewis, my young son is reading your Chronicles of Narnia series, and he loves them. He's just eating it up. He started with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He's read all the books. Um, but I'm writing because I'm a little worried about how infatuated he's become with Aslan. He's always speaking about Aslan, all the great things about Aslan. And I'm worried that he's idolizing Aslan and maybe even likes Aslan more than Jesus. And Lewis was very perceptive. He wrote back to her and calmed her uh, nerves and said, Dear ma'am, don't worry. Everything that your son loves about Aslan, he'll soon discover in love in Jesus Christ, because Aslan yeah. is just a Christ figure. And so he's like, don't yeah. be worried that he's found the seeds of the word and become enchanted by them. That's a good thing, because now his heart and his mind are prepared for the real thing that those seeds point to. Right. And that lens also helps us to see how the world is aching for Christ. I see this very commonly now with contemporary Hollywood films, which tend to be a little bit more agnostic or atheistic and portray worlds that are not really religious. Um, and of course, it's not. that's not the real world. The real world is a religious world. It has to be. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. But I find it interesting how Hollywood movies, especially nowadays, always try to depict things outside uh, as if religion is, is a non-issue in the world, even especially these apocalyptic movies. You know, it's like you have the apocalypse and there's not even a mention of God in the entire film. It's like, I guarantee you there'd be, <laughs> uh, the Catholic Church would have quite a role to play in, in an apocalyptic world. But that being said, 
as I watch these films, I'm amazed at how deeply they're longing for Christ, even though they do not want to or not able to mention him. And it's so fascinating to me. And as I watch them, it also helps me as a pastor of souls really discern how to minister to my people. So you can see themes of for Christ in film. So nowadays, for example, there's actually theme of family life in a lot of films. You see a lot of films that depict divorce, a lot of films that have this sort of nonchalant opinion of marriage, but ultimately that hurts the character. Uh, so the, you have these kind of themes in film. You see a lot of films to where people are struggling with goodness. Are there really good people in the world? I think of something like Maleficent, where you have the ambivalent character who's neither good nor neither evil. She's sort of somewhere in the middle. And this is very indicative of what our culture is struggling with right now is, am I good or am I not? Like, I don't know. So there it gives us another tool of, of evangelization. Yes, there is good and there is evil. And you can be good. As a matter of fact, you are good. You're created in God's likeness and image. So also having that eye with Christ and looking for how the world's longing for Christ in all things, having that presupposition that the world is longing for the Lord, even if it doesn't want to or doesn't know it is, that also helps us identify different themes for evangelization. Well, I think we'll probably leave it there, although we certainly invite you guys to ask some follow-up comments in the comment boxes. Although I, want, I do want to emphasize... Um, along with the angle that we've sort of taken in this episode, we're not here to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down on a particular movie or video game or book. Should I watch this or should I not? Again, you need to use all of the principles that we've just discussed here. And it's hard work to discern for you at this state in your life, given your context, given your background, given all the personal dynamics, maybe this thing is good for you, maybe it's not. Something you need to wrestle with on your own, with a spiritual director, with a spouse, with a friend. Um, but again, we'd be happy to, to answer more general questions in the comment boxes. So um, please leave them there. You can find it at borrowshirepodcast.com. Just click on this episode name and then uh, you'll find recommendations and links in the comment boxes below. Well, thanks so much for watching and listening. We'll see you guys next time on the Borough Shire Podcast.